internet that hasn't won a Webby Award? Two Girls, One Podcast. This week, your intrepid hosts go inside the excited furry facility to uncover exactly what these furries are so excited about. I'm sorry, I'm getting word that's not what EFF stands for. Well, hopefully this episode is still good. And now here are the hosts who would have been lawyers if not for that whole law school thing. Alison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Yo, yo, everybody, what's up? It's me, Lindsay. And me, Allie. And we are the two girls on this one podcast where we explore weird and interesting parts of the internet. Today is a little different. We're going to have a few episodes like this uh, coming out. A listener recommended the Electronic Frontier Foundation to us, and the best way to explain them might be the ACLU for the internet, but we'll ask. We talk a lot on this podcast about how we're kind of in the Wild West of the internet, and they're out there fighting the fights and making sure that we, the people, have rights. Yep. Yeah! We love rights. <laughs> we do. We do. <laughs> I can't wait to get them all back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Remember rights. Oh, my Remember God. Those? What a nice yeah. time to have rights. Oof. So in addition to the ones that you knew were being taken away, uh, others are trying to be taken away, and EFF is helping us. Truly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of rights we don't even know are getting taken away, which is also scary. Ooh, okay, let's not talk about that yet. We will let Cindy let us know what rights we need to fight for besides the right to party. I was just going to say that we got to that we got to enshrine that in in the constitution. Yeah, cuz we, we're still fighting. Yeah, yeah we got to fight for your right to party. I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to get out there and party. I was talking to my auntie and I was like, the world feels like worse than bef- than like ever before is that am i just like young and dumb Mm -hmm. i was like i was like you guys had like vietnam that was pretty bad and she said she said yeah but we also had at the same time drugs free love sexual revolution concurrently so the world was burning and then everyone would party but because of the pandemic (laughs) the world is burning and not partying the same way interesting yeah i thought that was an interesting perspective because like you know we're not letting loose Mm. yeah Okay. Right. See, the Beastie Boys did have it right. Dang. Good job, boys. (laughs) (laughs) So if you'd like to do shrooms with me, let me know. Uh, Cool. Can we do a parody of the song? And it's, we gotta fight Uh, uh. for the right. For encryption. <laughs> you know, Ooh, that doesn't Matt. have the same ring to it, but like we could work no? on it. Yeah. Get your band right, we'll back together, it. Matt. Yeah. The Blue Note Special. Was that oh, it? Yeah. We did not, uh, we did not do rap. Special? Blue what pl- was it? Blue Light Specials. Uh, you, she got it. She got it. Oh, here, we're, uh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> the Blue Light Special. Wow. Yep. Great. Great. So, we yeah. love to see it. <laughs> Well, today I am starting my clown workshop. Everybody get excited. Just 101. What what the hell are you talking about? What are you you get into this class and do what? Okay, well, I'm just going to say what I mean by clown, which is basically just 
sort of a presentational audience interactive style of performing. So you're trying to entertain the audience. What you choose to do and how you choose to like lean into a bit that you're doing is based on how well it's being received by the audience. And Mm -hmm. you let them know, you're like, look, I see that you hate this. (laughs) And then like you kind of (laughs) let them know, or like, I see that you like this. I'm going to keep doing this until you let me know you like something else. You know, it's kind of like the ultimate collaboration slash ego feeding of all involved, right? It's like a good Mm -hmm. relationship, you know? But this is different from improv because... (laughs) Have you ever been to an improv show? They don't give a shit if you like it half the time. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, God, how do I get out of here? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, I deal with clowns all day on the dating apps, so I'm clowned out. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Well, is it time for our court-mandated trivia? Yes. uh, The bailiff has called and he said... Get to it. Uh, We have to do trivia. Today's episode is about the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And in addition to protecting our civil liberties on this wide world of internet that we so enjoy, they also have a standing offer of $250,000 to any individual or organization that can do what? How can you earn 250,000 smackaroos? From the EFF, okay? I don't know why you're wow. ri- you know, writing packets and, and doing clowning. <laughs> you could be living large if you could just do this. What is it? Is it A, you have to expose and document a level three security exploit in the network architecture of one of the big five tech companies, Google, Meta, Amazon, Apple, or Microsoft. This prize is in addition to any bug bounties these companies already offer. That is choice A. I don't like when we call Meta by Meta. I like to call yeah, it gross. Facebook still. You know what I mean? It's Great. like, I'd like to misgender it. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, <laughs> and I don't want to respect it and its chosen name. Yeah. Hey, companies are people, Fuck so that. you better respect right, Facebook. their choice. Okay, cool. So yeah, choice A feels like no easy peasy. Go on. Okay. Choice B, develop a web browser with 100% anonymity which has never been done. If you can do that, oh, cool. 250 grand is yours. Or is it C? Discover a prime number with at least 1 billion digits. Hey, it's not C, you fucking psycho. I hope it's not C. <laughs> 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 I'm going to go with uh, A. Ooh. Oh, good. Wow. Right off the bat. Wait, what was A? The uh, the bug bounties. Uh, security exploits in the big tech companies. Ali Cho chooses A. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm going to choose B. Okay. Develop a completely anonymous web browser. That would be amazing. But I don't see how they could pay for it. But whatever. I like it. I'm going to choose it. Okay. Uh, We will find out the correct answer after this commercial break. To the following Patreon supporters, your privacy is safe with us. Is that the lamest possible introduction? These people support us at the $10 or more level. Patreon.com slash 2G1P, Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips, Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William, Jessica Kybell, Ken M, and Kelsey Murray. Thank you all so very much. And we know we 
said your privacy was important to us, and then we just said your names on air. <laughs> you opted in, and you too, listener, can have your names said on air. If you go to patreon.com slash 2G1P, support us at the $10 or more level. Just just the name. We're not going to dox you. Nothing else is happening. We don't know anything else. We're we're not good at that internet snooping stuff. Yeah, $50 level. If you want to be doxed, you got to put in $50. <laughs> patreon.com slash 2G1P. Advertisement and message thread entitled Powerful Computer Tower for Gaming Slash Video Editing From the Facebook Marketplace for the rest of us Craigslist.org Powerful Computer Tower for Gaming Slash Video Editing Be up for a trade maybe? I got a weird offer, but it's worth more than you're asking for the computer. What's the offer? A super tame and great full-grown red tail boa. I brought her up here with me from Florida. She's a little over eight years old and pushing about eight feet. She comes with a full-size custom enclosure. She's great around kids. I can't text you pictures. Yikes and a half. People. Obviously, Florida. <laughs> we need to stop <laughs> with the boas. There needs to be rea- a reality show, and it's just called Florida. <laughs> I mean, every week, it's, I think there's probably a couple of them already. Yeah. All right. Someone told me this story. I don't know if it's true at all. And also, stop me because maybe one of you told me this story about <laughs> someone. Some idiot told me this story. Someone had a pet, like, boa constrictor but maybe it was a different kind of snake and like somehow started cuddling with the snake like the snake would be in bed with her and then the snake started like unraveling itself to be completely even with her head tail to tail kind of thing tail to toe and then Uh she told someone and the person was like you need to get rid of the snake immediately it immediately it is sizing you up to eat you <laughs> yikes what is wrong with people oh my god yeah i'm also like wow is it any more or less dangerous than sleeping with men like <laughs> oh shit oh shit that's what's really Ooh, upsetting that felt too real real uh, too real yep. all right well, uh, let us know how we can make $250,000. Yes, 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 yes. You want two hundred fifty grand? all you got to do is one of these things. Uh, the EFF, who we're talking with today, is offering $250,000 to any individual or organization that can, A, expose a security exploit in the big five tech companies. Ali went with that one. Lindsay went with B, develop a web browser with 100% anonymity, which does not exist, or Nobody chose C. Discover a prime number with at least one billion digits. Are you sticking with your answers? Yes, sir. I'm sorry to tell you. The correct answer is C. And I'll tell you why this is important. First, I will say this prize money does not come from like donations or the operating budget of the EFF. It is provided by a private donor. So someone who cares about this is putting up the money and saying, internet, if you can achieve this, this is important. And there is a there is an incentive for the world to achieve this. Now, I am not an, a computer scientist and I am not a mathematician. So I'm You're going not? to reduce this what? very simply because I barely understand it. But 
The reason this is important is that when we eventually develop quantum computers or like super powerful fast computers, they will be so powerful that they can brute force their way through encryption. According to the EFF, their website, finding these prime numbers will be no simple task given today's computational power. It has taken mathematicians years to uncover and confirm the new or the newest largest known prime number. So for example, the largest known prime number today that we know of is a huge, insane number. It has 24,862,048 digits. So meaning that's not the number, that's how many digits it has. But in order to have super strong encryption 100 years from now, we need like a hundred million digits, a billion digits, whatever. You know, it's interesting because I was sure you were full of shit. But uh, actually, <laughs> one of my new favorite books is called The Humans. And it's about this alien who comes to visit. And the reason that these other civiliz- civilizations are more advanced than ours is their understanding of prime numbers. Wow. It was very cool. That's super interesting. Yeah. So I think that the premise here is that Like right now, your computer is just sitting around doing a screensaver. But if you could (laughs) allocate some of those, uh, that processing to a global network of number crunching things, like this newest prime number was just found by a guy who hooked his computer up to a network that was just crunching numbers constantly. So you can sort of allocate your latent computer power to this mathematical problem. And uh, maybe we'll be uh, traveling through space one day. That's, That's the goal. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. I want to travel through space with numbers. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Woo! All right. Okay, friends. It's exciting because guess what? Our guest is here. We are very happy to welcome Cindy Cohen, who is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome, Cindy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Cindy, would it be accurate to say the Electronic Frontier Foundation is kind of the ACLU of the internet? Uh, you know, people do say that the Electronic Frontier Foundation is the ACLU of the internet, and I think that's good for people who haven't heard of us. I will. I just want to point out that our friends at the ACLU do all sorts of things on the internet, too. So would it be more fair to say they're the Electronic Frontier Foundation of the earth of I love that <laughs> they are our good friends. We we work hand in hand. Um, but yes, we are similar in that we have a bunch of lawyers who do impact litigation, a bunch of activists who work, you know, in the on the legislative and and public not you know public information side of things. We also have a whole gaggle of technologists. The ACLU has a few now too. But that third piece, really understanding how the technology works at a deep level is what we have always brought to the table. Mm -hmm. And by always, I mean, we're a 32-year-old organization. We just celebrated our 32nd birthday. So we existed before the World Wide Web did Mm -hmm. and were created Mm -hmm. by some people who were kind of looking forward to what the world was going to look like when all of us had this cool technology that kind of was the province of, you know, big universities and defense contractors and stuff, and really wanted there to be an organization out there on the front line standing up for users. Did you ever realize things would get this out of hand? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think so. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, anybody who tells you they can predict the future is wrong. As my friend Cory Doctorow says, most most future people are just predicting the present. Except the Simpsons. They really get it right. That's true. The Simpsons. The Simpsons at some point. I mean, you know, there are those among us. But I was not, I don't think that our founders were 
But I also think that sometimes people who were interested in the internet in the 90s get kind of a bad rap as if they had no idea, th- you know, that anything could go wrong. And I... No, no, no. I think it's the early 2000s that fucked it up. Don't you worry. Perhaps. <laughs> it's, it's hard to know. But I would say that you don't found an organization full of like fighty lawyers, technologists, and activists if you think everything's going to magically go well. Yeah. Mm. Right. EFF was started with the idea that there were going to be fights to bring about an internet that really supports people. And the organization was created in 1990 with, with exactly that agenda. So um, the specifics have changed over time. And EFF has tried to evolve with them. But the idea that, you know, it wasn't magically going to be, you know, a perfect world just because we now had technology that connect us all like that, that was the founding recognition of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Well, can we talk a little bit more about the beginning? Because it kind of has like a star-studded opening. Like if, mm-hmm. if we were to make a TV show about this. How come no one has? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Can you tell us a little bit about how it started? And it started because they're like, hey, this is already a big problem. Nobody's paying attention to. I'm sure more of these will come up and we need to start finding a way to address it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, EFF was founded out of, you know, in some ways a set of raids on people's houses by the Secret Service and some other government agencies that really didn't understand what was going on in the early internet and would like raid people's houses and, you know, take everything that was plugged into the wall as if that could all be part of some grand conspiracy. Some people who were early, early internet adapters, one of them being John Perry Barlow, who also is a lyricist, was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, uh, Mitch Kapor, who founded a company called Lotus 123, which was the first kind of widely available um, spreadsheet program, um, and another guy named John Gilmore, and then some guy you might have heard of named Steve Wozniak, mm-hmm. uh, were involved <laughs> in the creation of an organization to, to first deal with these, you know, kind of raids on people who were using the early internet and to try to establish some standards for when the government gets to, you know, basically raid your house and take all your stuff. The, the first case is called Steve Jackson Games. And it arose out of a little game company in Austin, Texas. So that was the start. Um, but it very quickly, you know, it grew right to a bunch of other issues. And the the issue that I got involved in early on was kind of the recognition that if people were going to be having some of their lives online, they were going to need security and they were going to need privacy. They were going to need a, a way to protect their communications from prying eyes. Governmental was the first first threat in the 90s, things shifted a lot in the 2000s, right? Uh, now we're we're really dealing with uh, private companies who gather our data and monetize it against us. But in the 90s, that wasn't the central threat. We set out to make sure that people had the means to protect themselves. The best way to do that is still a strong encryption. Protecting cryptography and freeing it from government controls was another one of the early things that we did. And that was the first thing that I did with the organization. I was a young lawyer at a private law firm, but the EFF asked me if I would come and bring a lawsuit against the government to free up encryption technology so that the rest of us could use it. And and I did. And um, it was great fun. And uh, <laughs> I've kind of never stopped. I've never looked back. We have different <laughs> definitions of fun, but I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, this does reveal the particular kind of nerd I am. There is nothing more fun than seeing a federal judge write 
back to you and say, yes, you're exactly right, government. You have to stop <laughs> doing that thing. There's a kind of joy there that is yeah. hard to beat. Just to clarify for, for us and our listeners, meaning the government was like cryptography and encryption, we're going to control that and we're going to do that. And then your case was like, no, no, this should be available to everyone. And, there, and therefore it was like, if you had not won... Would we not have end-to-end encryption? It's fair to say that we wouldn't have have access to strong end-to-end encryption if it weren't for that case, plus a lot of other work that people do. You know, any large change takes, you know, multi-factors, right? So there were people pushing in Congress, there were people pushing the administration, and then there was us in the courts and a couple other court cases that were all pushing in the same direction. But yeah, you know, when you think about the science of secret codes, you know, that's something that the military uses. In fact, there's an mm-hmm. argument that our ability to break the German Enigma code is one of the reasons we won World War II. We also broke the Japanese code. And so I think the military and the government kind of looked at strong encryption as, you know, one of their things. Um, and mm. it was on the U.S. munitions list next to like surface to air missiles and tanks wow. was software with the capability of maintaining secrecy. And I think that probably made pretty good sense at some point in time. But it became clear as digital networks were developing that we were going to need, the rest of us were going to need that technology if we were going to have security and if we were going to have privacy. And so the lawsuit that I brought on behalf of a graduate student in mathematics named Daniel Bernstein, the, the case that we brought, Bernstein versus Department of State, when we founded it, was saying, look, this this technology shouldn't be on the munitions list anymore. That's a First Amendment problem because it means people mm-hmm. can't speak in private. And it also means people can't share the code that helps other people speak in private. And the First Amendment doesn't let the government require a license for that technology unless it meets very, very high standard. And, and the U.S. you know munitions list export restrictions were, don't meet that standard. Mm-hmm. So we were successful in convincing the court that Code is speech. Requiring a license to share code must meet a very, very high standard under the First Amendment. And the U.S. government's regulations, which were export regulations, didn't meet that standard. And as a result of that, you have end-to-end encryption, you know, whether you're using Signal or WhatsApp or anything, but also you have HTTPS. Mm, right. That's encryption too. There's just encryption in so many different layers of what we rely on every single day on the internet. It wasn't allowed in the 90s and it became allowed because of the work that EFF and others did. If you don't mind, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the Steve Jackson case because it just seems very illuminating in terms of what the Electronic Frontier Foundation does and why it was started. Yeah, um, the Steve Jackson Games case um, arises out of a little game company based in Austin, Texas. This game company still exists and Steve Jackson is an actual guy. He's lovely. This little game company hosted a bunch of bulletin boards, which in the 1990s were kind of like, you know, chat rooms. It's kind of the subreddits of the time. Somebody posted some information on bulletin board that was hosted by Steve Jackson Games that the Secret Service came to think was stolen and important information. It ended up not being really important information, and it was already available you know, in other places on the internet. So the whole thing was phony from the beginning. But what the Secret Service did was they raided Steve Jackson's business and they took all the computers. And I believe they took phones and everything. They took everything that was plugged into the wall and basically shut down this little company. 
for a long time while they tried to sort out what happened. And they didn't get a warrant. They didn't get the proper authorities. And then they seized everything. And poor Steve Jackson was watching his business go down the drain. And um, ultimately, everything got dropped against him. But EFF brought an affirmative case on behalf of Steve Jackson to say that the government needs a full warrant when it is going to seize somebody's communications and that things like email and communications that are happening on message boards really deserve the same protection as other kinds of communication from these kinds of seizures. And we were successful. And we were able to establish some of those basic principles that I think seem very obvious to everyone now. But believe me, the government didn't start from the position that anything that happens online was protected. I want to know how you find cases. Like, how, how do cases come to you or how do you search out cases? I would say that most of the time, people who get in trouble in the digital world tend to reach out to us. I used to joke that EFF was the 911 for the internet. (laughs) Uh, We have a full-time staffer who handles referrals, um, but we're looking for a particular kind of case. So lots of people come to us for help and we try to get everybody help. And we have a a lawyer referral network where we'll try to help people get lawyers if their cases aren't the kind of cases that we're looking for. Um, We're doing what's called impact litigation, which means we look for that set of facts that really, if we're able to win on behalf of that one person, we will actually set the law in a way that protects a lot of other people. So lots of people come to us with situations that are kind of very specific to them. And even, you know, they may, there may be something horrible going on, but fixing that thing won't help the rest of us. Sometimes we'll, we'll help those kind of people, especially if something's particularly egregious or something we can handle very easily. But generally, we try to help those people get lawyers who can help them. And then we look for the kinds of cases that are going to change the law. Usually what we do is we kind of reach out to the various communities that we think are being infected and say, come to us if you want to talk about maybe standing up for not only yourself, but everybody else. And, you know, 32 years in, it keeps happening. Wow. So what are the main issues that you're working on in 2022? Oh, there's so many. Um, You know, the internet has grown. Digital technologies are everywhere in our lives and EFF has grown along with them. We are now a hundred people. Well, we're doing a lot of work, you know, right now in this moment, helping prepare materials and also looking for test cases around the kind of surveillance we're anticipating after the Dobbs decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. So one of the things that we're seeing all across the country is efforts to try to surveil, attract, and find people who are seeking abortions or reproductive assistance and the people who are helping them. We've already seen a few cases where people's devices have been you know, seized by the cops and used to try to find information about you know, whether they were seeking abortions, and we expect a lot more of those. So we've been doing, we've been working on multiple levels for that. One is kind of sharpening our lawyer axes and getting ready for the test cases, some of which is putting out information, including we have a TikTok guide um, and other kinds of information for people who are either seeking abortions or uh, assisting people seeking abortions. Also working in the area of big tech, we have a competition team where we're trying to really help you know, re-decentralize the internet, try to help develop more competitive options for people so that we're not stuck with these five big tech giants whose business model is to spy on us. Mm -hmm. And then we're still doing some of the very traditional work we do. We do work in the courts to try to 
protect people against uh, governmental spying um, and to make sure that the standards by which governments get information about us are very, very high, including when do they get access to information on your phone? When do they get to, to search your phone? You know, right now there are these things called geofence warrants where a warrant will get served on, say, Google for the identity of everybody who is at a particular location at a particular point in time. Those are general searches, right? They're not, they don't, they don't have a suspect first and then trying to find the suspect. They search a place and then everybody who happens to be at that place gets their information gathered and, and searched by the government. That's called a general search or a general warrant. And we think it doesn't match what the constitution requires. We're doing all of these things. We're still defending encryption. You know, the FBI is still saying that the fact that we have strong encryption, end-to-end encryption, is a problem and it's something that shouldn't be allowed anymore. And so we are continuing to fight some of those same battles that we fought in the 90s to continue to protect your ability to have, you know, a private conversation in the digital world. There are issues with encryption, though, in terms of, you know, people then being able to spread disinformation, things like that. So what are the guidelines there? The problem with people spending disinformation really isn't very much about encryption, right? I mean, most of the time people are trying to tell a lot of people something. You know, the government will say, and I hate to put the argument for them, but that things like child porn and other uh, illegal things are harder to find because people have encrypted services that they they hold those that information in. And I think our argument is, first of all, they haven't really proven that. The authorities that uh, track, you know, child uh, endangerment materials, NCMEC is what it's called, are overrun with reports. Huge numbers of reports come from the various services, and they're only able to investigate and prosecute a tiny little portion of the reports that they received so far. More reports actually isn't going to make us very much safer. If we were going to throw money at the problems, I think we should throw more money at enforcement, not more money at reporting. And that's true all over the world. Yeah. There are millions of reasons why I think end to end encryption is tremendously important. It's important for protecting people who are in abusive situations, children and adults, right? That's how they get out of a lot of these situations is they find a secure way to get the information they need to get out of those situations. So undermining people's security as a way to make law enforcement's job a little easier, I think is always a pretty bad strategy. Mm -hmm. It's as if the, you know, your local cops came to you and said, look, we think that um, there are burglars about and we want to make sure we catch them. So what we want you to do is we want you to leave your doors open so that if the burglars run in or if you turn out to be a burglar, we can more easily get in and catch you. I think most of us would say, find a better way to do your job. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Great analogy. You're making me less secure. But that's what we see over and over again. And whether they call it a front door, a side door, a back door, or guaranteed access or whatever name they come up with, because they seem to come up with a new one every couple of years. That's the basic deal that they are suggesting to all of us. You know, once you leave your back door open, um, especially in the digital world, there are a lot of governments that will not follow the rule of law who will get into that same back door, right? And, and, and we work a lot with people who are trying to stand up 
who are Chinese dissidents or Ukrainians or people in repressive regimes all around the world. This is an extremely dangerous proposition for them. Yeah. And just to understand the whole search and seizure warrant situation, like if I don't open my door to law enforcement, I'm a, I have a right to not do that unless they have a warrant. And similarly, if I'm sending an encrypted message to someone like, they don't have a right to see that unless a warrant is presented. And then I am compelled by the court to then show them the messages, right? There's no reason that encryption would prevent law enforcement from doing its job as they currently do it in the real world. Am I understanding that accurately? Not quite. I mean, okay. I think the reality is you're correct that as long as two people have access to an encrypted message between them, the law enforcement can almost always convince one of them to decrypt it for them. But there is a fight about when do you have to decrypt when the cops come? You have a right against self-incrimination. That's the Fifth Amendment. Um, And the Fifth Amendment says that you can't be required to present evidence against yourself. Um, And that denies cops all sorts of information that they want, right, when people take the Fifth. And I think there is an open question, and the courts are divided on this, but EFF has a pretty strong position on it, that opening your phone when the cops show up is something you should be able to plead the fifth around. Could I could I also lock my door if a cop shows up with a warrant then? No. Why is that different, I guess, is why I'm at, is what I'm asking. It's one thing to let the cops to to require the cops to come into your house. They should have a warrant for that. It's quite another thing to let the cops into your phone where all your most intimate communications, your ongoing things there, I think that should be a different standard. And I think you should mm-hmm. have the ability to plead the fifth. Wasn't there some kind of loophole or something where if your phone has a code lock, you're, the cops can't ask you to open it? But if it has like a fingerprint lock, since they can get your fingerprints if they book you in, they can open it with your fingerprint or something like that? I think we'll have a fight about biometric opening. But right now, you're exactly right, because putting your code in requires the contents of your brain. And the Fifth Amendment has always said you don't have to give the cops the contents of your brain in a context in which it could be in- self-incriminating, mm-hmm. which is much narrower than most people think. But let's let's assume that it's it's covering this situation. But there are cases that say that if it's using your face um, or using your finger, um, they can do that because again, you're as you're exactly right. They can take your photo when they are arresting you. They can take your your fingerprints when they are arresting you. Right. Not at all what we're seeing. We're seeing the cops will pull people over and ask if they can take a look at their phone. People feel coerced. They say, well, we might arrest you if you don't give us your phone. So people will hand their phones over. Right. Well, that, that's just coercion. It's yeah. just coercion. But it count, uh, you know, right now we don't have the law on our side about that. There's work to be done there. But I think that this is one of the reasons why people who are engaged in protest activity or uh, these days, again, um, protection of people seeking reproductive assistance that we suggest to them that they either leave their phone at home, get a different device for that kind of work, use a, a code that requires your brain to open it rather than something that just requires a piece of your body to open it to give you that little extra level of protection. Though I think anybody who tells you that this is a bright line and you will be completely protected if you do one thing rather than the other is being overly confident about these things. It's It, it can help and it has helped. Sometimes you know, the police just look for the easiest way to do things. And if you make it a little harder, sometimes they'll just drop it and let you go. And (laughs) that actually happens. And it happens a lot. We still have a lot of work to do with the law to protect people. But some of these technical things can help give you an edge. 
I would love to hear more of what you were just talking about in terms of the protections that people need to think about when they're seeking an abortion. We have a, a, a big set. Um, and so I, I can only give you a subset of these now <laughs> on our website. We have information and there are two sets of people that we've, we've developed materials for. First are the people seeking abortion and, uh, and the second is for people who are helping people seek abortion. And both of these communities need to take protective measures because a lot of the laws, the early laws we've seen, do not criminalize people who seek an abortion. They criminalize helping them. So the Texas law, for instance, and some of the other laws we've seen across the country. So it's important for people doing assistance to have protection in some ways, maybe even a little more than the people who are seeking the abortions. But I would say it's, it's both of them should do them, but the protections might be different. So some of the things that we, we suggest is to make sure that you keep the, the things that you're doing in abortion protection from the things that you're doing in the rest of your life. Don't use your one Gmail account for everything. Wait, sorry, is this for people in in red states or blue states as well? It's for everyone because right now you don't know what will actually be criminalized. So in the concurrences, only Kavanaugh said that people in a state where abortion is legal, and if someone goes to a state where abortion is legal, that You can't prevent people from doing that because of the right to interstate travel. But it's not clear that the other conservative justices agree with that or that Kavanaugh would actually stand up to them if that comes to pass. So it could be made illegal to help someone who is fleeing the laws of their state come to your state to do something that's legal, which would have big effects across many things like if you went to Colorado and smoke pot and you're you live in a state that it's not legal in. Yeah. Okay. so, for instance, if like, I don't know, last week I maybe wrote some abortion organizations in L.A. saying that I would pick people up from the airport. Should I not have done that from my laptop? (laughs) <laughs> it would be better if you used a different device and a different account. Who has an extra device, though? Well, <laughs> we have to fix the law here. Do you think democracy is crumbling? <laughs> yes, but but it's not gone. <laughs> I was feeling better, Cindy, and now I'm feeling worse. As with too many things in the law, people with more money and resources have more options than people don't. And this is especially yeah. bad in the abortion situation because we know that this the burden of this is going to fall disproportionately on people without means and people from mm-hmm. marginalized backgrounds. And so it's it's the same on the digital side as it is on the non-digital side, that it's easier to implement some of these protections if you've got more means. But it, it is the case. Not everybody can afford two devices. Not everybody has the sophistication to set up multiple accounts or run things like the Tor browser, which is free but and will hide your tracks. Mm. But you know, it's, it's, it takes a level of technical sophistication to do some of these things that we're trying to make better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another piece of what EFF does is we develop tools and try to make tools that everybody can use to make things better. And, and Lindsay is exactly right that we don't know what the cross state lines impact is going to be of some of these rules. Missouri tried to pass a law that explicitly made it illegal to help somebody cross state lines in order to get an abortion. Meanwhile, if you're a white man, you can feel free to cross state lines with a gun and just shoot people. Have fun. I mean, you're exactly right about, you know, I mean, the the hypocrisy between how we treat some things and how we treat other things is just you know, screaming here. But 
Yeah, but there's a whole body of law around child protection, around taking a kid across state lines that I'm very worried will end up getting deployed here, right? Right, right, right. Things like spouses who take the kids and go across the state lines. There's a body of law that that we're quite nervous about and the jurisdictional cases are quite nervous, nervous about, that meaning that people who are in blue states who want to help should take these measures too. Even if you can't be prosecuted, you can implicate the people you're trying to help mm-hmm. who can be prosecuted. What about incognito mode with my secret email? Does that help me? So incognito mode on Chrome is very poorly named. So if you're talking about Chrome (laughs) incognito mode, it does not help you here. It doesn't do anything that I think most people think it does. Okay. Incognito mode only protects you if your same computer is used by other people. So it helps you if your mother uses your computer and you don't want her to see that you were searching for her birthday gift. Oh, I was like, you don't want her to know what kind of porn you're into. There's that too. (laughs) Incognito mode helps you, but it's device protection. The browser makes sure that your other users of your device can't see what you're doing. I think too many people think that that is actually protection against Google or third parties or advertisers. It's not. Wild. So the things that people can do is they can use privacy protected browsers. Tor has a browser. DuckDuckGo's browser doesn't, doesn't track you as much and not use the products whose business model is tracking you. We also, there's an ad ID on your phone that tracks you that is used to give personalized advertising to you. We have instructions on our website about how to turn that sucker off. And, you know, some of these laws have private bounty hunters, right? So private citizens can sue you for assisting in abortions as well in some of these state laws. So making sure that you cover your tracks as much as possible and don't leave tracks in the first place where you can't. So I would love to go back to one of the other major prongs that you mentioned earlier, which is how essentially five companies kind of control the internet and you're working towards decentralization. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that and what the strategies are? Sure. I mean, lots of people are working on this issue and um, and we join with a lot of them in terms of trying to revitalize antitrust law and make it really apply better in the digital environment. You know, participated in, uh, you know, the Epic Games case, which is about trying to free up people from the app store limitations of Apple, been commenting on proposed legislation and working with the FTC, which is looking at this and some other people. So we're involved in the policy side debates as well. I think one of the things that we're trying to bring to the conversation as an additional tool is the idea of interoperability, or we call it competitive compatibility. And this is the idea that kind of the technology makes available that it can be pretty hard to convince people to leave entirely Facebook or, you know, Google, but it ought to be easy for us to build tools that make Facebook less controlling of what we do to have different interfaces into it. You know, some of this is through, you know, APIs, but some of it might be through other kinds of interoperability. So the idea is, well, you know, you should be able to create your own adventure on Facebook and so other people ought to be able to help you create your own adventure. You know, EFF rep- helped represent a company a while back um, called Power Ventures that made a program that let you sign in to all your social networks, Facebook, this was a while ago. So it was Orkut and, you know, in, t- in today's world, it would be Snapchat and look at all of your social networks through one screen. 
and not have to sign in and sign out and to have all of your contacts there. So you don't have to remember whether you know somebody on Facebook or you know them on Google or where, however you know them. Um, you can just type it in and the app would figure out how you knew them and message them that way. These are two services that people would love to have, right? Facebook sued this company into a smoking hole. Wow. Because Facebook wants to cr- control your entire thing because they want it, they want their business model to be able to track everything you do. So this is just one example of an interoperable tool that doesn't exist right now that people would like to have, I think, or at least there's probably a market for, um, and that the current law and practices of companies like Facebook make impossible. So we're active all across the board in trying to facilitate competition. We've talked about it here quite a bit of like, there was a conscious choice made by the progenitors of the internet and the web and our government and as citizens of like, no, this is for everyone and it is all interoperable. The, yep. you know, email is decentralized. The web is decentralized. Like we made a conscious choice to have the web as an everybody can claim their stake system. And over time, the majority of us, you now use the internet through five companies only. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just glad there are organizations trying to claw us back a little bit or, or bring back the benefits of interoperability. The good thing about interoperability is, is as you said, like we had an interoperable internet. Now we need to look at why it is it became centralized. And some of those are legal, like suing competitors mm-hmm. out of existence, mm-hmm. like Facebook did mm-hmm. to Power Ventures. Some of those are about scale and doing things at mm-hmm. scale. Right. We have this tool in our toolbox. And, you know, I'm all for changing antitrust law. I'm all for thinking about ways to, you know, go more directly at the tech giants. But that's going to take a very long time. And it's a complicated thing to do. Interoperability in some ways might be a little more of a low-hanging fruit approach that we could get to more quickly. Um, the European Union has just required interoperability of messaging systems. Mm. We wouldn't have picked that one to go first because uh, secure messaging is really important. And one of the things that we have to figure out how to do is really secure messaging that isn't centralized. And so that's going to take some time, but it's a good sign that in general, kind of some of the world's regulators are starting to think about using this as a, as part of the tool in the toolbox to get us to a better internet. Meaning if I use WhatsApp and you use Telegram or whatever, like they would have to communicate with each other, like Cor- email correct. Cl- clients would. Yeah. As my friend Mike Masnick says, you know, uh, protocols, not platforms, right? That, <laughs> that, that we need languages for these systems to talk to each other in this instance, in a secure way, which again, I'm, I'm, I do not underestimate how hard that is, but it is doable if we actually had people who wanted to try to do it. Yeah. Interoperable social networking is a lot easier. There's already Mastodon. Um, there's already uh, protocols that have been developed that still need help scaling and developing, but but already exist. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are other protocols as well that we can do to try to get us out of, of this particular really pickle that we've built for ourselves. Yeah. We have a question from our Discord, which we think is a great wrap question as well. So Bowie Barks wants to know, what are your biggest challenges to maintain your organization's mission in 2022? And how has the mission changed over the past few years? Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. I think right now, one of the biggest challenges is convincing people that we can build a better internet. I feel like as a society, especially people online, we've kind of 
reach the point of despair. We feel like these are all intractable problems (laughs) and we can't do anything (laughs) about them. You know, we, 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 I have, we have a podcast at EFF. It's called how to fix the internet. Uh, We try to go deep with one person, each episode who has thought about a piece of the problem we're in and has ways to fix it and can help us envision, even envisioning an internet that's fixed seems hard for people right now. So, you know, you can't build a better world unless you can envision it. I would say having spent most of my career saying things could go terribly wrong if we don't do it this way. Things could go terribly wrong if we don't have encryption. Things could go very terribly wrong if we don't have free speech. We don't have the Fourth Amendment. I kind of feel like it's partially my responsibility to turn around and say, this is what it would feel like if we get it right. This is how we can fix the things that are broken right now on the internet. So I think that is in some ways the biggest problem because without that enthusiasm, you can't get anywhere. We have a federal judiciary that is very hostile to people's rights right now. Um, at least, you know, marginalized people, people without power, they seem to be very actively interested in already powerful people having rights. Um, but that's, to me, not the role of the judiciary. The judiciary should stand up for the rest of us. In terms of like how have things changed, um, you know, uh, one of the biggest changes is the one I talked about in the 1990s, biggest threats to people online really came from governments. And sometime in the early 2000s, um, and certainly by the time we reached 2010, the role of private companies and the surveillance business model became, I would say not greater, but an equal problem. Because we still have governments of the world that are censoring people and attacking people. You know, you, know, you mm-hmm. look at what's going on in the Philippines with uh, the Rappler and all around the world. It's, it's not like governments have suddenly decided that they're going to be great supporters of people's rights. <laughs> so we still have repressive governments using things. We have things like state-sponsored malware and surveillance that are still very much a problem for people. But now we also have the surveillance business model. And both the big companies and the whole adware infrastructure, right, the whole advertising business model, data broker situation, which involves a lot of small companies too, um, that track our every move, try to make inferences about the rest of our moves and do so in a way that inevitably hurts the already vulnerable among us worse. Those issues have arisen and they're big and important and require our attention. And the other big change is the ability to do surveillance everywhere all the time and combine that information in order to have really a 360 degree view of our lives. You know, whether that's the ring doorbell monitors or uh, license plate readers or all the cameras everywhere. Um, I think the fact that surveillance technology has become so cheap and easy and ubiquitous is another problem that we didn't exist in the 90s, um, but really does exist now. You know, EFF has a whole team called Street Level Surveillance that works on those kinds of issues to try to really require warrants, require a high standard for governmental access to that information, but also to try to convince people that maybe the best way to be a citizen is not to surveil all the other citizens around you (laughs) um, and to recognize that that falls disproportionately on the most vulnerable in your community. And I know that Allie's going to be like, oh, Lindsay, again, with the Pollyanna-ness, but 
it makes me feel better knowing that there's somebody like looking out for us, trying to protect us against Big Brother. Yeah. Well, we do our best. I will tell you that one of the great things about this work is that it's really fun and you get to work with really fun people. So if there are people in your audience who are jazzed at this and want to be part of the team good guys, you know, it's bigger than ever. The digital rights movement is big. It's powerful. It's global. Um, It's not as powerful as the people we're up against. We still need more. (laughs) Mm. It does exist. We don't have to make it up after whole cloth. We just have to keep empowering it and keep being nimble and finding ways to really push towards a better world. But the good news is that there are lawyers, activists, technologists, and ordinary people, you know, people who are none of those all around the world who really put in the time and energy to try to help make the internet better for the rest of us. Well, this was just the tip of the iceberg, but you did mention some great resources for our listeners. Could you just reiterate a few resources for people who want to know more? Sure. Um, EFF, for we talked a lot about uh, abortion. Our reproductive rights page at EFF has links and tutorials, and we have a TikTok videos and everything to try to help people who are engaged in that movement or want to support it to see the things that very specifically developed for that community. We also have general tools called surveillance self-defense tools um, that work for all sorts of other um, issues that people are working on to try to do self-protection. We do have our our How to Fix the Internet podcast, where each uh, episode we try to go deep with somebody who has thought deeply about how to make the internet a better place. And then the EFF website just has, you know, if you want to go deep on the Steve Jackson Games case or the Bernstein case, the crypto case, or any of the other things that we've talked about, all the Fourth Amendment fights that we've had around people's devices, the Fifth Amendment fights about when do you have to open your phone or your device. We also have tools. EFF has helped encrypt the internet. We're part of the Let's Encrypt coalition that's done that. So if you run a website, you want to make sure that you have HTTPS available to everybody, go to Let's Encrypt. It's free. It's easy. And you can help secure all the people who use your website. It, the Privacy Badger is a plug-in for Chrome and Firefox that helps block third-party cookies and help make you a little more protected as you go around the internet. You know, we not only use lawyers and activists, but we use technology and technologists to try to help create this better world. Well, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming, and we really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. I think it's awesome that we got to talk to Cindy, you know, in these dark times post row. Yeah, she was oh, she was hopeful though, which was nice. Um Yeah. I'm working on a writing packet for something and so for listeners for a potential writing job, we'll see, but it I've been writing sketches and it's like they're mm-hmm. all so dark and I'm like fuck, I need to <laughs> cuz that's just like where I am lately and I'm today's assignment after podcasting is like I need to rewrite some of these to just like be lighter. <laughs> You know, there's only so much dark comedy. What is comedy for? If we live in dark times, we have to turn to the entertainers and social commentators to say, look at this bullshit. (laughs) Right. But I think something I've been struggling with is like the balance between commenting on it on the news and being really dark and on the flip side, being an escape. Yeah. Where it's just like, this is fun. This is fun. It's positive. It's light. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the person that's doing the best at finding the levity in the tragedy is Trevor Noah. I think Mm. he does a really good job at still making it funny and entertaining while 
fully addressing the horrible like demise of society. It's when that is done well, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Noah, John Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. It's foreigners who chose to come here (laughs) and we're like, look, we're going to double down and commit to America, (laughs) even though it's a trash bag. And here's why (laughs) that's who is helping us see the light. (laughs) He interviewed this like fucking my friend calls her Nazi Barbie, but I can't remember her real name. But she's Ann Coulter? Like, no, not Ann Coulter, but a similar younger version. Basically, he interviews her. Tommy Lahiri. I think that's who it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is so calm in, in what had to be like an infuriating interview. He's so calm and so witty and smart. It was like very impressive. Yeah, I don't know how you do that. Yeah. It's it's a smart black people superpower. It's like when you're constantly surrounded by privileged white people and you are the only one, you have to respond to their lunacy with extreme calm for safety. Oh well, you have, I mean you're onto something. I right? mean unfortunately, yeah. it's He's going to be able to have a better conversation doing it that way, for better or worse. It's the only way you can. I mean, when you're talking to insane people, you have to be calm. You just have to be. But there's an art form in letting the insane person out themselves and say stupid things like your instinct is like, look at how stupid you are. But you just have to let them show it. And it's. I don't know how you do, how you restrain yourself. It's the Socratic method. You just keep asking yes. questions and they think yes. you're interested or intrigued. <laughs> but when really you're just giving them a long rope to trip themselves <laughs> and all of the other. <laughs> right. I'm telling you, you're going to now look at all the smart Black people, you know, like Katanji Jackson Brown had to do it. Obama did it constantly. It's like (laughs) you just it's like the amount of lunacy people present to you when they are like, I don't know, threatened or feel like this black person thinks they're smart, but like I'm still white. And then you have to be like, (laughs) yep, you are. You are good for you. And it's just constant is wild. It's wild. Yeah. Tell me what you think about this. And, and you, you both have weird jobs, and, and I do too. But on another show, uh, it might have been someone, the president of the Society for Human Resources, who is a black man and a lawyer and, and very uh, accomplished, of course. And he was like, black people who worked at home during the pandemic felt enormous relief and achieved better mental health than their white counterparts because they stopped having to code switch all the fucking time. They could just be at home and relax and be themselves as opposed to having to like change who they were amongst white colleagues. I was like, whoa. Slash be on guard for the attack. (laughs) Like there are studies that show like going out into the world less often is better for black people's mental and literal (laughs) physical health in a way that they were able to study during the pandemic. Just going outside (laughs) makes your blood pressure higher as a Black American person. And it's not genetic because Black people in majority Black continents like Africa, they don't have blood pressure problems like Black Americans Mm -hmm. have. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I think everyone has high blood pressure at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Except for Black people, their blood pressure is lower, Allie. That's what I'm telling you. (laughs) Hey, they did it. We did it. We solved it. (laughs) Just stay home. Except now we know that being at home is also not safe. Yikes and a half. So sorry. Great. I thought we were going to be optimistic here at this ending, guys. (laughs) There is an optimistic view that's like, 
we're in a pocket of time where it's like, we don't know what the fuck the internet is and we're really screwing it up, but hey, let's fix it. Let's work on it. Let's let's patch things up. And as we said in previous episodes, like we got to get going faster than we have been. But like, perhaps this is not a backslide. Perhaps this is a correction of like, oopsies, we move too fast. Let's fix this. And then maybe 10, 20 years uh, in the future, we'll we'll have a better handle on things. That mm. I mean, I'm not saying that will happen, but I'm saying there is an optimistic way to proceed here. Yeah. I also like how Cindy was like, yeah, we're trying to refocus things, right? Like, and not just because we can, we're not just going to highlight these things more. We will also be like, look, we need to put more money towards enforcement of the things we've already highlighted. We don't need to do more. Oh, this is also bad. This is also bad. We know a bad thing in this thing. And now we need to start (laughs) prosecuting it. (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, decentralization is not a dirty word or a bad word. It's how we envisioned the internet at the get-go and it worked really well. It was better when we, the people owned the internet, not five companies. And I think a distinguishing line is that the the crypto bros and the web three people are looking at that and saying like, what if it was a casino? And that's terrible and bad. Wait, what do you mean? What if it was a casino? Like decentralization has taken the form of cryptocurrency and NFTs and and mm. and capitalism as mm-hmm. we just as we've discussed. But like the true devil. Like what Cindy said, and like let's back up and say like it's a fucking miracle that I can use Yahoo Mail and and Lindsay can use Gmail and we can send messages to each other. Like that's how the web used to be. And now tell that to a kid today. It's like, well, what, you're not on WhatsApp? Then I can't talk to you. Like it's a different universe. We used to have nice things and we fucked it up because <laughs> we we closed the walls. You know what I mean? There's a way to get back. And it doesn't have to be a casino and it doesn't have to be Facebook and Google. It can be interoperability. I hope that we can get it a little bit. I hope so. Yeah, there's so much we didn't even get to discuss with her. Because I'm still kind of confused on just like how they are able to buy up all the competition and have these monopolies. You know, that seems like a pretty basic thing that I learned about in high school was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, fighting monopolies and that it was like an American principle not to have them. And then we've just allowed them, which I don't understand, because I also think there's a potential solution just in like breaking up these companies, which I know obviously has been discussed. But but it's that it's that speed because it was like the Internet's really open and there's a barrier to entry and it's really mysterious. And then all of a sudden these companies come along and now grandma, I always say grandma because I'm not disparaging grandmas. I'm saying (laughs) average person can get on the internet and connect to everyone. What an awesome world. The trade-off was that she has to do it through algorithms and through private companies and through logging in and giving up her privacy. Well, you heard it here. Matt hates grandmas. I hate them. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, this is rad. Also, friends, if you are in the Discord, Bowie Barks is already a member of the EFF. If you have questions, I'm sure they would be happy to answer them and have, you know, a discourse in the Discord with you Mm. about it. I see what you (laughs) did there. Yeah, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. So I hope that our listeners will go down those wormholes with EFF. And Matt will put some of those links in the show notes, probably. Mm -hmm, For sure. Cool, cool, cool. Check them out. Check them out. And if you'd like to join the conversation, yep, you can chat with us, discord.gg slash 2G1P. 
we do not fight for uh, freedom, but you can still donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash 2G1P. You can leave us a voicemail. We love those. Please leave us a voicemail. That number is... 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6 You can also email us at 2G1podcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook sometimes. <laughs> Search for <laughs> Two Girls, One Podcast on Facebook. And I'm at Allie underscore Goldie across social media platforms. And I am at The Lindsay Life. Lindsay with an E. Thank you. And uh, leave a review. Apple Podcasts and I think Spotify is doing reviews now. So if you've been listening to the show for some time, we hope you'll do that. Yeah, podcasts are interoperable. Use whatever app you prefer and it helps <laughs> us grow. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Two Girls, One Podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Then raided by the Secret Service. I mean produced by Matt Silverman in New York City. This episode was edited by Abital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.